Are you ready? Hey everybody! Hey folks! Hello everybody! People in the back! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Without further ado! Without further ado! Okay, so without further ado, we're gonna get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're, we're gonna get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. The Inner Loop Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and many other streaming sites. If there's anywhere you'd like to hear the Inner Loop Radio where it isn't currently available, shoot us an email at theinnerlooplit at gmail.com. On today's episode, we have an exciting hour of local literature planned for you. We certainly do, but first, for those of you who don't know, The Inner Loop is a literary reading series for writers in the D.C. area to come and read their own work aloud each month. Writers' experience varies from the absolute beginner to Pulitzer Prize winners, and they range in genre from poetry to fiction, nonfiction, and even sometimes playwriting. And on the Inner Loop Radio, we like to offer some highlights from our readings, as well as going a little further in depth on the writing experience. So, on today's show, we're going to explore writers who use animals and other non-human beings, objects, or places as characters and symbols. Yeah, so how do you, you know, it's, it's funny for me, um, when I'm thinking about my essays, which are nonfiction, generally speaking, um... A lot of times I write about place as a character. And oh, that's, yeah. That's something that I really have fun with. Because Definitely, it, you, yeah. can, you can tease things out that aren't necessarily on the surface, but then use it to dig into themes that are sometimes harder to just spit out there. Yeah, it's funny that you should choose this topic because I feel like there's not a story that goes by without place being a character mm-hmm. in everything that I do. And I remember in when I was getting my MFA and with um, one of my professors, Vijay, mm-hmm. um, when I was having trouble with the story, he said, you can always start with place, start with the place. And lo and behold, it worked every time. Yeah, we're just struggling. And that's kind of like, just even start by describing the surroundings and you see how the personality of an area or a region or even a room can come out and really color your work. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, similarly, an anecdote, um, I had a, an advisor, or uh, Joanne Beard actually once said to me, "You as, as a writer, you need to be able to write yourself into any consciousness. So whether that be a seashell or, <laughs> you know, your dog or right. <laughs> anything, you need to be able to imagine yourself in that consciousness. And I always, I keep that tucked away with me and, and that helps when I'm feeling writer's block now and again, but never happens. <laughs> <laughs> but you are a big nature writer, so I feel like place and animals play a big role in the things that you do. Definitely. And, um... You know, for those of you who know me, certainly my dog. <laughs> my dog, too. I was going to say, my memoir, or not in my memoir, but the later essays of 
since I had my dot Dalmatian blue, um, she's like, yeah, mm. she's a major character. I'm making Courtney's, a sad face right now. <laughs> Courtney's frowning because blue passed away in 2012, but um, I had her for 13 years and she always played a different role in my stories. Definitely symbolism. She, Animals are great for that, for symbolizing, you know, your id or you know, some kind of basic motivation, um, they can stand in and play that role of, of a really simplified version of what's happening for the main character. Absolutely. And even if they don't end up in the final product, as it were, I feel like often initial drafts, you know, I warm up by kind of writing myself into a room or where I am, even if that's not what the, the piece is about. Yeah, totally. And usually there's... As like a warm-up. Yeah, usually there's a creature about <laughs> that kind of like, you know, helps me to center and zone in on, oh, what is it that I'm actually thinking about or trying to get at here? Yeah, and the other thing about animals is that they do represent like a more basic version of us. And they are so fascinating. They're filled with mystery um, right. because you don't know what they're thinking or what their experience is. Like Joanne Beard said, you, you know, you... It takes an incredible amount of imagination to try to get into their consciousness and what does their consciousness say about our consciousness as human beings? Exactly. Um, they, I'm always kind of like, you know, they're, you, you hit it on the head, the, the unknowability, but then being tangible at the same time. Right. It's like, oh, this is this physical thing in my space, but there's, it's a world away. Yeah, and it feels immediate, though, mm -hmm. even though it's so unknowable. It's right there. Like, I look at my cat, I look at my dog. I'm like, you are having an entire experience right there. And it's like bumping right up against my experience. And yet, I'll never know what it is. Right. Well, we have um, several writers, actually, who have written about animals at different points and come to read with us. <laughs> so we are going to hear from a few um, to see how they do it and how they treat animals as characters in their pieces. Um, we have a couple coming up here. The first is from Josh Jones, a piece called The Truth About Goldfish. And we have, we've had a couple about goldfish. I know. Yeah. Goldfish seem to come up a lot. <laughs> They're I, that mystical, sure <laughs> magical kind of, you know, uh, thing. And then um, who else? Oh, after that, we'll hear J.G. McClure read his piece entitled The Cat. The Truth About Goldfish. <laughs> On Saturday, Daniel Morgenthau decided to stop eating. He made no formal announcement. He was not one to make a fuss. He quit smoking almost 50 years ago, much the same way. Didn't finish his pack, but left it on the kitchen table, forgotten, until Muriel smoked them herself and complained at their taste. She preferred parliaments. Now, Daniel stood in front of the open pantry, then the refrigerator, closed each for the last time, and went back to the Times crossword. What's an eight-letter word for Milton's unwilting flower? Muriel didn't answer. She only read the horoscopes, cutting each one with her kitchen shears and smiling whenever a prediction went awry. She had no time for bullshit. <laughs> Virgos, will fresh, Virgos will find fresh perspectives outside and positive changes. Travel and new beginnings await. We're staying in today, she said. <laughs> Daniel frowned. He'd hoped to be out when their daughter called. She would ask him if he was eating well, and he'd feel obliged to tell her he'd given it up. And she'd say, not this again. And he'd have to distract her with questions about the grands, about whether they were wetting the bed or if they'd killed another pet. Last month, it was their hamster, Hammy. 
and a chewed power cord. Who comes up with these god-awful names, he'd ask. And his daughter would say, stop changing the subject, Dad. She exhausted him with her constant probing, her insisting he'd go in for a checkup. She still didn't believe he'd given up breathing six months ago. It was either that or sleep. Anything to stop snoring, stop Muriel complaining. And he liked sleeping too much. You should give it a rest also, he later told her. The house was much pleasanter now without his shrill nose whistle piping tunelessly. You just want me to quit smoking, she had said, and lit a cigarette, and then another, and another, until she was puffing on five, six, seven cigarettes at once. Smoke wreathed about her, then drifted toward him with tenderly fingers. He could no longer inhale her fragrance or her, uh, her fragrance of tobacco and cloves, of sauerkraut and sweet onions, of chemical perms. He couldn't recall whether it was pleasant or not. He was lucky if he caught a faint redolent ribbon drifting across his olfactory cells like scattered petals of some forgotten flower. Amaranth, eight letters. You should have known that, Muriel said, and Daniel agreed. He was the gardener of the family. He had arrayed three tiers of potted plants above a brick-lined koi pond. The ferny plantings strained against their ceramic cages, their leaves drooped in perpetual frowns. Below them, the scum-covered pond was full of their discarded leaves. Daniel couldn't remember if he'd fed the fish or not, or if he'd even seen them in days or weeks, or whether they were fish, or whether they were carp or goldfish. Loss of smell triggers loss of memory. Nonsense, Muriel said, and to their daughter. He chooses to forget, you know. Then makes excuses, just like he chose to stop cleaning the bathroom these past seven months. Your father's turning into a schlub. You haven't gone to the bathroom in years, Daniel called. <laughs> Muriel cupped the phone in one hand and said, that's not the point. <laughs> Don't mind your mother, Daniel said. She's not been the same since she stopped sleeping last year. I thought she'd take it up again after I stopped snoring, but she says she likes the quiet. Now, when I wake up, she's taken the scissors to everything in the house. At first, it was just coupons, sorted by item and expiration date. Next, it was junk mail, the bills, my newspaper, all my books, all cut into paper ribbons. She shredded all my ties, never said why when I asked, not that I wear them anymore, and those chenille curtains, the ones with a floral print. She even sliced up her hands pretty bad, not that there was any blood. She hasn't bled a drop since her pulse stopped last. Stop it, Dad. Just stop said his daughter, the line humming angrily in the pause that followed. There was a sound of rustling cloth or sniffling, and then one of the grand said in her tinny voice, Hello, Papa. Daniel could never tell them apart. Dakota would talk about her new goldfish, Goldie. Muriel would babble about, um, Mira would babble about some video game or other. Now one of them was asking, was being coached to ask, if he and Graham would be coming to visit soon. Has Goldie died yet? Daniel asked, and a burst of tears crackled across the line. Must be Dakota. Daniel continued, Don't worry, Goldie isn't really dead. Goldfish just pretend, like possums. They long to swim in the ocean, so they turn all glass-eyed and float on their backs until some unwitting parent flushes them down the toilet, and that's when they make their escape. They're quite clever more clever than humans, who think sticking an animal in a bowl the size of a grapefruit will make it happy and not drive it to desperate measures. And no fish is as desperate as a goldfish. The truth about goldfish is that they never die. They are immortal, 
and so are you, if you want to be. Most people don't after a time. In the end, they grow too tired or bored or are just too stupid to continue living. Then they often die and leave your parents with a fat wad of debt instead of an inheritance. But don't let me worry you. Your gram and I are like goldfish. We're even planning a trip to the ocean. <laughs> Thank you. First, she'd bring a mouse, a bird, fur or feathers matted, eyes bulging, fang holes in the neck. Then one day, a deer. The whole stag matted, bulging, fang-holed. She purred her tiny purrs. Good cat, we said. Nice kitty. For a long time it was quiet, then an SUV wheels up and oil pooling. The tires twitched pitifully. She circled, rubbed, moved from leg to leg. We've got to tell someone. It only means she loves us. We'd buried the car when she brought down the jet. Dazed passengers filed out one by one. They called us terrible names. We scratched behind her ears. What else could we do as she batted the oxygen masks? When the army came with their tanks, she ate their tanks and slinked toward the city. We heard great cries, then silence. Now she's dragging down the sun for us. The air gets hotter every day. Eggs boil inside their shells. Pigeons burn mid-flight. But she looks so happy coming near, the fire shimmering in her eyes. Weeping, doomed, we lay out her favorite treats. In the end, there's only love. That was Josh Jones reading The Truth About Goldfish, which was published in Necessary Fiction, and J.G. McClure reading The Cat, which you can read on our blog at www.theinnerlooplit.com, along with an interview with J.G. McClure and DC's Passenger Magazine. Up next, we'll go from cats to, you guessed it, dogs, and Courtney will read aloud from one of her very own pieces. Continuing our show about animals as the main characters or significant symbols in poems and essays. And we're going to have our very own Courtney read her piece called The Hunt. That's right. Here we go. It's three in the afternoon on Easter Sunday, and I'm stalking a quail in my parents' garage. It's a male, and he's fast and furious, or so I project. I've enlisted my father's youngest and very eager setter, Sandy, and she's got it trained on the dark back corner, trying desperately to wedge her way through a carnival of rusted bikes. I woe her. This isn't our first rodeo. I tap the pole <clears throat> I tap the pole end of a fishing net into the darkness behind a creazo covered piling and listen. There's the faintest of scuttles and tiny rapid breath as the bird huddles himself into the overgrowth of insulation. I've spotted him now, and I inch the net around the pile of bikes to where I can almost just scoop him. He darts out, on foot. Sandy breaks point and skitters across the concrete between surfboards and power tools, empty garden planters and deflated rafts. I lift my head and bang it on the AC duct, cursing my father for his pack rattery. 
Along with the trash dive finds and relics taking residence in the garage, his collector's eye also lends itself, these days, to wildlife. The yard houses a menagerie of left-for-dead game birds, raised, played with, and discarded by other hunters. At the Hotel de Luiso, as we, we routinely, that's my terrible French for you, <laughs> we routinely host half a dozen quail and several pigeons, currently one albino among them. Extended stay residents include a mangled-legged pheasant, three ducks who respond when addressed by name, Harvey, Barney, and Joe, and two chuckers with eyes deep as Ophelia's pond. One guest is apparently dissatisfied with the lodgings, as evidenced by my current state of affairs. I turn to see Sandy sniffing loudly by the front door, and I slowly make my way to that end of the garage. As I approach, she looks at me with something between frantic hunger and complete disdain. Human. I did my job. How the F did you bumble yours? I move scrapwood that bars my access to the new corner she has staked out and bat away cobwebs filled with pine needles. I reach blindly behind another piling, and my hand lands on soft down. The little body shifts ever so slightly at my touch, racing heartbeat giving away statued defense. Above us, the dull, muffled drone of NPR leaks through the floorboards. Sun is streaming in at a lazy angle through the pines, and we are, all three of us, still. I make my move. Feathers flutter and tiny feet are running in place, but this time I've got a hold of one of them, and I lift the bird by it from his hiding spot. Sandy dances in front of me as I shift my grasp. I cover the quail's wings and clutch him close to my chest. The hunt has left us both, both winded. His oversized heart beats in a fury against my own, and we are synchronized for a moment in the urgency of living. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> So, does that take place in Vermont? Um, that's actually in New Jersey. Okay, at yeah. your parents' house? Yes. So, um, there's actually a really large preserve of land, the Pinelands, um, that stretches across about 1.1 million acres of Holy southern and central New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are, um, there are some sanctioned, uh, kind of wardened-off game preserve areas, um, where, because the native quail population has been hunted to extinction at this point, and also hmm. they've they've lost habitat, so it, in New Jersey in particular, it's really hard for the native po population to sustain, so hmm. um, hunters will often stock them with raised birds, but then those birds have never survived in the wild. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they often end up at our house. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, but it's it's always, um, you know, that was one of those moments where I wasn't expecting to be writing anything. Yeah. And then this kind of up close and personal experience with this wild thing that, that we just don't usually have. And, and the kind of very intimate moment with, I, you know, I know the dog very well and know what she's capable of, but this this helpless kind of little thing that that we were both kind of trying to figure out what to do. I don't know. It just it just really lent itself to some some larger themes that I had been thinking about in my life at that point anyway. And yeah, it was it was fun. Very nice. <laughs> um, well, if you will, please stay tuned for our uh, next segment where we'll hear from Michael Collier 
Uh, among his many recognitions, Michael was the Poet Laureate of State of Maryland from 2001 to 2004. Gather. Gather. Um, you can gather in. Gather round, gather round for the second half. And we're gonna get started. We're gonna get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Continuing our show on Animal Muses, we're here live with Michael Collier, who, as we mentioned, served as Poet Laureate of Maryland and who has been a longtime supporter of the Inner Loop and mentor to many of our Till alumni. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. It's, it's good to be back. It's good to be in this little contained <laughs> area rather than exposed at a bar. Yeah, it's a very different <laughs> yeah. atmosphere. Yes. So, Michael, um, you read After New Ruta with us, which uh, from... I think you said it has a new title now? It does have a new title. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a listen to it, and then we can chat about that a little bit. You can discover yeah. the new title. Yeah. yeah, you can. Why don't you try and guess what the new title is? Oh, okay. that's a good plan. Shouldn't be hard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I leave my backyard and enter the alley in search of my poetry. I get lost a few houses down near the Eldridge's because all the fences, fences and trash cans are identical. I am alone, filling a shirt pocket with the bees David Hills eviscerates by pulling out their stingers, and which he has lined up on a flap torn from a cardboard box that's pinned to the ground with four small stones. In a toolbox, I have a small hammer and screwdrivers for taking things apart. Above me is the sky that is always blue. This means at night, the stars are what I see but can't count. The alley is dirt. My shoes scuff its uneven surface. Suddenly a door opens, a dog barks. It is Boom Boom, a chihuahua, not even a dog in my mind. It rushes its side of the fence and is so much louder and fiercer than it needs to be. After a while, it stops. Now it sounds like a tambourine because of a collar with tiny bells it wears. Passion flowers grow in a thick vine over Boom Boom's fence. I have been told the leaves of these flowers are the lances that pierced Jesus's chest and broke his legs. Boom Boom is whimpering, lying down near a place in the fence through which I squeeze my hand to touch his nose. Boom Boom, I say very quietly, I love you. You are the only one who understands me. Afterwards, I feel very small and very large restrained and freed and certain there is a purpose to life beyond the one I've been given. Okay, so if I had to guess, <laughs> is it now called Boom Boom? Of course it is. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> it, should have called, it should have been called Boom Boom from the beginning. But, you know, therein lies the 
the typical history of how you write a poem. And because that poem was, really the origin of that poem was reading Neruda's um, notebooks mm -hmm. and finding this, this line there about him going outside into his backyard, uh, which was um, really a kind of forest. Mm. and going through and looking at all the different plants and describing what was there. He called it his poetry. Mm. It's sometimes hard to um, convince yourself that you don't need to explain that kind of information. Right. And to detach yourself from the beginning of the poem mm -hmm. and let the fact that the imagination has... has a actually appropriated that in a, in, a, in an totally. okay way. Absolutely. You know, it totally. My my mind immediately started wondering, just um, thinking about stepping into the backyard and feeling poetic about it, right. <laughs> because I've had that experience so many times. Sure, there yeah. are, there are those moments when you feel your own intentionality. I think in in searching for that poeticness. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I, I think also. You know, we have these um, complicated relationships to what we write. Mm. And um, when I'm working with um, um, sort of beginning students, one of the difficulties to, to get them to begin to understand what revision is about is just uh, getting their fingers loose of the first draft mm -hmm. because it feels inviolable. You know, it feels sacred. Definitely. And, and, and so part of the process is just to realize that that inviolability, that sacredness is always embedded mm. in the poem. Hmm. But nobody needs to know it except you. It's, it's a private relationship you, you have with the poem. And, and it's, a, it's a relationship that's quite important and has a lot of power to it. But it's not really necessary for the reader to to feel that in the way that the writer has felt it. Mm -hmm. the, writer has, the writer has many different kinds of uh, relationships to the poem uh, he or she writes. Of course. And that, in that initial relationship with the first draft is always there no matter what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's, always, it's always there. And... Uh, it's different for a painter because a, a painter, if a painter wants to move an arm, you know, you paint over you it. You paint over it, or you take a photograph, and a lot of people do that. Right. They, do, you know, they're documenting uh, all the stages. That's mm -hmm. what's one thing that that's happened now. Um, but uh, a writer doesn't have to do that. A writer always has the draft. Mm -hmm. You know, always, always writer has a, has all of the drafts there. It's like, you know, geological layers. You mm -hmm. can always go back and, and see where it began, how it transformed. It's evolution. It's, it's, it, it's there. It's a, it, there's a map to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, that's a, that's a particular relationship that the writer has to the poem. And the reader doesn't necessarily have to have it. The reader might be interested to look at a famous poet's drafts and right. see how see the process, it, it, see the process and sure. see how it evolved i mean that is that's really interesting but that in fact is a different uh experience than you know reading the final mm -hmm. yeah the final or the ish. abandoned draft <laughs> <laughs> that know. is such a better word for it 
<laughs> I really like that idea of the private relationship because, of course, we ha- we have those and we know that. But, you know, there's always that drilled into your head, kill your darlings thing. And it's like you really don't have to kill them. It's yeah. Like you're just retaining them in you. Yeah, you can keep it for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, one you know, one of the things that we write out of is this sense of having a secret life. Mm-hmm. And I think I think those first drafts are kind of soundings into our secret lives. Mm. And you wouldn't want too much of the secret. You don't want to give away all the secret uh, in what you produce because it's it's not necessary. It's something that you, you need to keep mm-hmm. uh, for for yourself because if you give too much of it away, uh, there's nothing to draw on. It's right? funny that you should mention the secret life because I feel like Courtney and I were speaking earlier about um, the lives of animals and how it feels like such a secret. It's so um, mysterious and um, hidden. And when the writer tries to tap into it, it sounds similar to what you what you're describing with the secret life of the writer as well. Yeah, I think animals invite us to. Um, imagine, mm-hmm. you know, once we start looking at them and get beyond the fact that right. it's a dog mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then, uh, or that it's, or, or not a dog as the case may be, <laughs> or not, a, or not a dog. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, f- you know, we find that behind that, which is true for any kind of, um, looking close, looking twice that um, there's a mystery, mm-hmm. right? And of course, animals we also use to um, uh, project onto. Yeah, I was going to say imbue <clears throat> with our feelings. <laughs> and they explain a lot. I was thinking about about the animals because you know because I knew we would be talking about this a little bit, and I I hadn't really thought about this before, but you know the earliest representations in art are of animals in the cave mm. paintings. Mm-hmm. They and just found some new ones. Did you see? No. Uh-uh. Some very early uh, paintings and and earlier than they had found before, and they showed leashes. <laughs> even even you know forty thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And hierog and hieroglyphics. E- Egyptian hieroglyphics have lots and lots of animals in them. So um, you know, there's there. The, Anthropologists have all kinds of reasons for that, but just the fact that that animals become the earliest subjects for art, mm-hmm. I think, you know, is worth pondering a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'll exp- if you can explain it com- completely, um, but I think I think it also explains part of our attraction. Sure. Why why animals are used uh, so much in 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 poetry well they're so they're so easy to it's so easy to graft yourself onto them i think um just in life and in writing because courtney and i both have a lot of pets well (laughs) she has a dog but she has a lot of pets in her mind i think yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, and it's like so easy to fill them with uh, anything they're like a it's like a blank slate and you know i talk to my dog um all the time and and it's funny um my boyfriend and i live together and my dog and I moved in with him, and <laughs> he imbues the dog with completely different feelings than I do. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm not a dog. I'm not a. I'm not a dog person. I had dogs when I was a kid, but uh, as an adult, I haven't had dogs. I had two <laughs> sons. I felt that was that wasn't enough id loose in the house. Right. <laughs> well, would you like to read something else for us today? Sure, I'd be happy yeah. to. Um, I, I just because you had talked about animals, mm -hmm. and I have I have a lot of animals in in my poems, so I thought I would read a couple. The most recent poem I've written is about a goat, and uh, I'll read it and then just, it's very short, I'll read it and then just talk about it a little bit. Goat on a Pile of Scrap Lumber He lowers his head like a fur-covered anvil, as if he knows all things in the world change. His eyes are bisected by a horizon line of yellow light. You're wondering what might happen if you move closer. There's a language we speak to ourselves and one we use for others. I told you he's lowered his head. Nevertheless, you can see for yourself he's chewing. What he swallows becomes his rumination. I, too, was attracted to someone I did not understand. With each other, we were bestial. That's not too strong a word. Although at first, at first, when our foreheads touched, we were curious. I met a, a goat in um, eastern Oregon at a, at a friend's, I guess you would call it a, he had a little farm, and he ha he had a goat named Francis. <laughs> okay. And this was, I don't know, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. And I immediately tried to write a poem about Francis the goat, because Francis the goat was a little bit like this goat. It would get up on top of things, you know, to have like a dominant right mm -hmm. uh, position. And you go into the yard, and it would be, you know, there, right there. <laughs> and my friend Joe just said, just if. If Francis comes after you, just ignore it. Stare him, stare him down. <laughs> Meet him where he's at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, and, you know, that didn't really seem. <laughs> anyway, so, anyways, I tried to write this poem, and it just never ever went anywhere. And then, uh, a couple months ago, I just remembered Francis the goat standing on this, <laughs> and and this little poem, squirted out. <laughs> it just it came out I mean it really did just come out I love that when the subconscious is working for you you just have to let it yeah but how long was it working that's the interesting thing <laughs> and one of the things you asked me about was to maybe think about how I work or how my work has changed mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that's that's really happened is that poems I've started 10 15 years ago that are just little pieces and I don't even have to go back to them necessarily I just have to remember I was working on them mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I can get access to them mm -hmm. and they're not really I wouldn't say this little poem about the goat has anything to do with what I experienced at that moment at that time right <clears throat> but but somehow it, it, they're getting um, they become ways of of exploring something about my experience I'm preoccupied with now. Now, 
Totally. And the image, the image has stuck with you. And suddenly, I, I feel like I've had that experience where an image stuck with me and I meant one thing at the time um, and maybe I didn't do anything with it. But then suddenly I have an experience later that matches the image and it just yeah. pops it right back up in your right. mind. Yeah, exactly. This is encouraging for me because I have pieces. I, I, I call myself a collage artist. I have, <laughs> I have pieces and fragments of things poems, whatever, right. uh, in my mind and on my computer and on my walls and in notebooks. And I often forget about them. But similarly, years later, it will have been unfinished, but it'll circle back somehow. Mm. Um, I've been looking a lot in the past few months at how the brain actually mm. works in terms of working memory and different types of memory and recall. And it's still a mystery. Mm -hmm. I really think there are there are these external triggers that it just has to be kismet when it when it happens when you come to it and it comes to you yeah i i think that that's probably right uh the fact that i wanted that when i first encountered francis dear francis <laughs> um i thought i thought we would we would nego negotiate something <laughs> on the page at some point but he also had a pond uh, Joe did. And I tried to write a poem called Joe Powell's Pond. <laughs> <laughs> so that has, that maybe is next. I, okay. I don't know. <laughs> we'll look, we'll look out for that one. <laughs> I didn't get very far with that one. <laughs> yeah, so I have another little uh, poem with some animals in it. Great. This has crows. It's called Morning Crows in a Fresh Mown Field Before Rain. Three in a group, then one coming from a distance to make four dividing into two scavenging pairs. They waddle like ducks, dibble like robins. This close to the earth, they have nothing to say. And yet as they bobble in a hands-behind-back colloquy of feints and nods, they are the ankle boots of an idea gone missing. Their laces threaded through eyelets, but left untied. Accountants of random expenditures. Connoisseurs of the worm's catacombs of waste. They limp eastward, toward the mountains, covered in contractor bag capes. One wiry foot, then the other on the ground. If they would stay just where they are all morning, they'd be the monument to the history they're looking for. So one thing I always kind of struggle with, and I mentioned this to you, Rachel, I think, yeah, you were in that class too with Joanne Beard. Mm -hmm. um, one thing she said to us that I always think of is you need to be able to write yourself into anything or anyone. Um, even if you don't know that thing intimately, you need to figure out how to do that. How do you do that? Somehow you have to feel it viscerally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This idea of <clears throat> creating uh, empathy uh, and, and then being able to stand in and try and e explore that. The real trick, I think, is trying to figure out how you're taking on somebody else's voice is like <clears throat> when you write about an animal, 
just another way of talking about your own experience. Right. Right? <laughs> totally. So it gets back to what Graham Beard was talking about, that you need to be able to figure out how to uh, get inside and bring your own experience to to that to that other yeah. being or place or yeah. what have you and that and that it's not uh, a confection it's not like putting on a costume right no no it's the empathy it's just yeah. putting yourself in that experience taking a piece of your experience and relating it to this right. other being's experience yeah I think exactly. we have time for one more poem. Oh, you have one more poem? Yeah. Do you have a big a big one? No, I don't have <laughs> I don't. an essential essential animal poem. <laughs> um well, how about uh, how about another I, there I have dogs. <laughs> I, we love dogs. We're dog people. That's cool. Okay. And I I hadn't really thought about this, but this is somehow related to Boom Boom. It's called a real life drama. The dog standing in the middle of the street, tail stiff, fur bushy with fear, and a pedigree rabbit, its neck broken and bleeding beneath his paws, might have been forgiven or simply taken away and shot under different circumstances, and no one would have said much except his owner who'd gone out into the yard at the start of the commotion, having been involved at other times with the dog's truancies, <laughs> and yelled, Bosco, Bosco, God damn it, <laughs> but unavailing, and everyone understanding that once more Bosco had been taken over by the dark corner of his nature. <laughs> But this other sentiment we shared as well. The man who raised the rabbit shouldn't husband something so rare and beautiful he couldn't keep it from the likes of Bosco. And who knows where that poem came from? <laughs> I think it was a total, just a total invention because it's not from anything that I saw. I think, though, that is that image of the wild mm -hmm. that comes out in all of us right. at times, um, I think is, is very current right now, especially. Um, and that's one of the kind of quintessential that like, you know, the, the dog or the beast with with the prey at its feet. Yeah. Mm. Um, but that can be unleashed in all of us. Right. And there was also something that just, you know, in all of us too, is that uh, not to blame the dog, but then to blame right. the person who had the rabbit. Right. Said, totally. to, well, it's your fault. You should have taken better care you of that. You should have taken care of that. You shouldn't have let the rabbit out. This is right. why we can't have nice things. <laughs> yeah. It's all, so it's all, it's all kind of wrapped up there. Mm -hmm. But I don't know who Bosco just... I don't know why, but I love that name. <laughs> because, you know, it's like, it's it's just like one letter off from the expected Roscoe. Yeah. Right. You know? Well, there's, I think there's a St. John de Bosco, too. Okay. Mm. And uh, so it must be a place. Okay. Any last words of advice for uh, our budding writers? 
Well, I think the best thing you can do is go to the loop uh, readings <laughs> and participate. And Thank help, you for that plug. <laughs> and help support help support what what you're doing because it's it's really important and it's unique. Uh, and you guys bring a really particular kind of uh, contagious energy uh, to what you do. And uh, poets and audiences really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thanks so for coming on the show. Oh, it's, it's a, pleasure. a pleasure. Thanks, really. Thanks for asking me. Of yeah. course. Stay tuned as we close out our show with just a few more clips featuring Fauna. last animal visions this month, Dave Kay takes us into a world of wasps, while Rachel Giard shows how animals can provide an entree into a poem that ultimately goes deeper. This is called Something Cannot Breathe. I don't buy cigarettes from the man downstairs anymore. No, not anymore, not since he stopped selling them. Paper, son, he told me. Paper is what the future holds for me. I looked inside his boxy storefront and saw crates full of dead wood and flower clippings. At night, there's a buzzing I cannot place. It keeps me awake. I stare at my gray plaster ceiling and think about everyone else in my building, this latticework of single rooms, doing the same thing. My neighbor's room nests into mine. Our walls slope into one another. I see her scrubbing dark smudges of travel stain from the carpet in front of her door, and I see red welts on her shoulders and neck. I don't mention them to her the same way I don't discuss the welts under my downstairs neighbor's chin as he carries wood in from outside. I say nothing about the buzzing to anyone, as if only I could hear it. On my way home, I swat a fat wasp out of the air with my rolled-up newspaper. Soon afterward, ants form a thick circular perimeter around my building. I crush them underfoot with my comings and goings, enough that I can smell it. Dead ants smell like juniper, oddly enough. More ants swarm over the fallen, but none of them advance within two feet of the front door. Articles of furniture pile up outside as, floor by floor, my neighbors clear out their apartments. The man down the hall from me used to play his wireless set late at night. Now he sits outside his room and drools into a clod of pulp, shaping it with his bare hands and spreading it across the wall and ceiling. I ask him what he's doing, and his response is a low droning sound, his jaw slack. Other neighbors mimic his behavior. The buzzing is louder now, like an apnea. Something cannot breathe. I ask the maintenance man if there's a problem with the building's steam boiler or pipes, and pulp falls from his mouth like gruel. The next evening, the building's electrical power shuts off, and no steam hisses from the pipes. They buzz instead. The only thing that drowns out the buzzing is rain. And if I had a large enough gun, I would commit my life to shooting holes in the sky. I'm almost hit by a red-paneled steam coach as I cross the street, and the driver jumps out to curse at me. His eyes are clear, and I can understand the words leaving his mouth. I'm sorry, he says. It's these goddamn bees. He swats, he swats one away, then shields his face from possible retaliation with his arm. Wasps, I say. <laughs> I could never stop myself from correcting people. 
Whatever they are, he says, I'm not letting them near my family. I sent my wife and children out of the city already. With any luck, I'll be gone by sundown. He swats three more away, but they hover above his head. Where are the flies is what I want to know, I tell him. I haven't seen a fly or a mosquito or even a cockroach in weeks. The man tells me he isn't sure, hasn't even thought about it. His chin sinks toward his chest. I tell him to be careful and make haste to my apartment. Insect husks rustle under my shoes. My floor is completely shelled in by paper. And so are all the floors below me and at least one floor above me. Men and women on ladders are plastering the building's exterior, and when the rain falls, it bounces right off their handiwork. There used to be an advertisement for an undertaker and embalming service on the side of my building, painted right on the bricks. It's been papered over now. I buy a pastel crayon and do my best to recreate it from memory. But an old woman who lives on the first floor swats the crayon out of my hand. I turn and yell at her, and when she opens her mouth, a single wasp floats out like a soap bubble. I smash it with my bare hand, and she bursts into tears. Ants scramble up from where her tears hit the ground and join the squirming ring of their fellows holding vigil around the building. I can hear the buzzing during the day now. I open my door to leave and tear through a thick paper carapace one of my neighbors smeared over it in the night. When I return, a group of them is pulling my door from the hinges altogether. My landlord among them, her thin face and aesthetic body bloated with wealth like all the others. I chase them away and run from the cloud of wasps they leave behind, pulling my jacket up over my head and neck to shield my face from them. From a distance, my building fans out above the others like an umbrella. It looks brittle and delicate. I suppose it is. I find a new apartment, thankfully a new man to sell me cigarettes. I watch the paper husk over my old building as it creeps down the block. Continuous buzzing muffles the normal hubbub of city life and no longer interrupts my sleep. Newspapers detail the medicinal benefits of wasp stings. Someone on the wireless reports a red panel steam coach abandoned on the railroad tracks with both doors open. They found blood spattered on the seat. The rest of the report is drowned out by buzzing and then abruptly halted by the music they play during technical difficulties. I keep dreaming about stripping naked, walking outdoors, opening my arms to them. One day, I will wake up to find myself doing it. Until then, until then, I pray for rain. Thank you. I walk up to my old house, steps creaking in time with my plain stiff knees. Crows pause their throaty protests and decide, I'm not worth their time. I wish the dog would do the same. No admittance without a scratch, though a bone would be better. The white hairs on his chin, my funny old man. Belie an age his wag will not admit. I shed my coat, second skin of winter with the apprehension of a selkie. My mother warns against salt and slush as my boots come off next. Rubber-soled L.L. beans dwarfed by my brothers. I make no reply and pad down the hall, wool-socked and unrepentant. The tumult of youth has left these rooms 
Dim and sterile winter light settles onto pine floors, root of New England, pushing shadows into the corners it cannot reach while I move past the ghosts that line the walls, framed and fading. In the den, my hands reach out to love-worn spines, silent companions of an old solitude. Their immutable characters seem to make a mockery of my own. Outside, January branches, brittle, bare, begin to tap out in sinister code against our still frosted panes. As I begin to think better of death than disappointment. That was Dave Kay with Something Cannot Breathe, which was published in Pink, followed by Rochelle Giard. And that's our show. Join us next month for our show exploring how to go from micro to macro, from an idea to a finished piece, from one piece to a collection, wherein Pulitzer Prize winner and our personal mentor, Vijay Shishadri, provides us with his always profound insight. To find out more about us or to submit to read at our next event, visit www.theinnerlooplet.com. The Inner Loop would like to thank Andrew Logan for our theme music, Mark Buckskimper for our logo, and James Skinner for technical support. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other streamings that you use. Your review could inspire the next person to tune in. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Right on, Litwits.